This episode is part two of an interview with Peter Valk, all about sexuality, Christian sexual ethics, same-sex attraction, and what that looks like for the Christian church. In part one, if you haven't heard it, please go back and listen to it. It's it's so good. A little bit about Peter. He is a writer and speaker about discernment, vocational singleness, and Christian sexual ethics. He's the director of Equip, which is a consulting and training ministry for churches to help gay people thrive according to the biblical sexual ethic. He is a teacher and aspiring deacon in the Anglican Church in North America, and he's one of the founding brothers of the Nashville Family of Brothers, which is a new monastery of sorts building family for men called to kingdom singleness. And he's also a licensed professional counselor. And Peter does an excellent job in the previous episode of laying out his heart and his vision for helping gay people follow Jesus and find love and support and belonging within the church, but also his commitment to helping them do that within the framework of theological orthodoxy and commitment to the historic Christian sexual ethic of God's design for marriage and sex between one man and one woman. And he just absolutely nails it. I mean, if you don't go back and listen to part one, it's probably going to make it hard for you to fully understand and appreciate part two. Because in part two, we're diving straight into some of the pushback that Peter has received, not just in general, but specifically from pastors and leaders from within our movement here of CGN. You know, I reached out to some of my pastor friends who I love and respect and told them that I was going to be doing an interview with Peter. And not many of them knew Peter very well or understood his ministry. So naturally, they had some questions. And even after doing some first glancing at some of the things Peter had to say on social media, there was even some pushback. And I think that's the kind of thing that can be a little scary, a little tense, a little like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. But I just have to say, Peter was so gracious to jump to the chance to answer some of these questions and pushbacks with so much truth and grace and love. It's beautiful. I'm so impressed with this guy. I think he does a phenomenal job. In this episode, we get into it. We get into some of that pushback. We talk about what it's like for Peter to deal with people being skeptical about his ministry because of his sexuality. And then specifically, we get into, man, just there was some really good pushback that got sent in. Things like, What does Peter have to say about people in the side B sexuality movement sometimes lionizing the gay identity and propping up gay Christians to almost a celebrity status? Another great question we got is, is gay sexual sin worse than straight sexual sin? We're going to hear Peter's thoughts on that. We're also going to deal with the very big and very common pushback in this conversation about why does Peter use the term gay Christian? Isn't that misleading or stumbling? What's the reason behind it? We're even going to deal with some pushback that actually came from me personally at the end of the episode. And hopefully Peter and I are going to do a good job of modeling what it looks like for two ministry leaders to disagree on something in a way that's gracious and an example of iron sharpening iron. I think we did a good job. I'll leave you guys to be the judge. Overall, I thought this was a phenomenal conversation. I so enjoyed it. I think you are going to as well. So with that, why don't we jump right in to the episode? We're going to pick it back up from where we left off in part one, and we're going to start diving into some of the pushback that Peter has received around his ministry. Peter, 
I think anybody who's listened this far is probably really blessed with what you're saying, really encouraged by what you're saying. I want to jump into some pushback, potentially healthy pushback. How does that sound? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. I've been speaking to some pastors that I know and friends that are in the, the Calvary movement. I would say our movement has recognized that there are problems within our churches, historic problems where we have not addressed this well. We have not done this well. We have not reached out to gay people historically well. I think that for many of us, Preston Sprinkle was kind of the gateway of opening some of our eyes. A lot of guys a few years ago read the book, People to be Loved by Preston Mm -hmm. Sprinkle that was really encouraging for a lot of us and just kind of making us realize like this, this is a problem. Like we haven't handled this the best. How can we handle this better? But I think just in the cultural moment with all of the political stuff going on and just all of these conversations, a lot of guys have their guard up to some things. And I think looking at your ministry, I don't know if you experience this, but I'm sure you do. But I'm sure that when you try to do what you do with Equip, let, let me just start with this question. When, when you try to do what you do with Equip, do you feel like a lot of times you feel like there's walls up that you have to break down with people where maybe they assume certain things about your ministry at first glance? You know, they, they might assume like, oh, you know, because there is the word gay, <laughs> just simply the word gay mm-hmm. in this sentence that they're, they're assuming that you take a progressive Christian stance or a theologically liberal stance. Do, do you find that you have to deal with those barriers? Yeah, and I think I get it kind of from from both directions. And some of it is, I guess, is reasonable, right? Like, I, it would not be reasonable for me to assume or for me to demand that every person who stumbles upon anything that I've written or anything about me on the internet would then spend 30 minutes reading a an explainer article <laughs> on my website that clarifies each of the tricky things that they might misunderstand, right? Right. That would not be reasonable for me to demand. And so people are going to take a quick glance and based on all of their previous life experiences and what these words and what these things have meant that people have used in the past are going to make a quick judgment, a quick assessment of who I might be. And that's just kind of how humans work. Like it's, it's efficient, even if at times inaccurate. So yeah, I get a lot of that from both directions. And I think that's why part of my job is to be patient with that yeah. and, and to take the time to, to clarify. And I think that's because I represent this kind of middle way between two extremes of, of the revisionist kind of sexual ethics on one extreme and the ex-gay theology on the other extreme. And I don't know if this, what I would call compassionate orthodoxy in the middle has mm. been built out enough mm. to where the average Christian knows what the what the platform is, you know, what the talking points are for someone who yeah. finds them, themselves in that middle space. They know what the talking points are for a revision of sexual ethic. They know what the talking points are for ex-gay theology. But the stuff in the middle, it's 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 not as built out. It's not as crystallized. Yeah. It's not as kind of uniform and and and, and well marketed, you know. And so yeah, 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 people don't know what they're getting into when they when they interact with me. And so I'm I'm but I'm willing and eager to to clarify. Well, I'm glad that you have thick skin. I can tell that you, you've developed that. And, and I, I love what you're saying about that, that humble orthodoxy in the middle. I, th- I think that's beautiful. And that's a huge value that we at this show try to carry is, oh. you know, that, that humble orthodoxy.
let me give you some specific pushbacks that came from sure. just guys that I it. know. And I'm not going to like name them. Uh, oh, yeah, no I, know, I know who they are, but you know, <laughs> they, I, I, I look at all these guys and it's like, I respect them. Some of them, you know, I would say are a little bit more conservative than me in the sense of not, not in theology, but more just methodology sure. and that's okay. And, and I try to learn from them and I try, that's why I'm, that's why I'm presenting some of these pushbacks because I want to know what you think. And I want to know, yeah. is there validity to these to these pushbacks. So here's mm. one from a guy. This guy leans a little bit more reformed Calvinist, a friend sure. of mine, and, and he said that he recently went to a conference from kind of a more Calvinistic theological background where they mm-hmm. really were pushing back, not necessarily against you, but just against against more, I think, you know, maybe revoice, you know, the, the revoice conference and some of the things around that and some of the sure. side A, side B stuff. And the thing that my friend specifically said in his pushback This is kind of his takeaway coming from that conference. He said, why are we lionizing gay Christians and treating them like celebrities and heroes that in his perception, that that's what he thinks is starting to happen. Hmm. Why are we lionizing gay Christians and treating them like celebrities and heroes just because they resist temptation? Every Christian resists temptation. You don't see us celebrating people who resist the urge to commit adultery or do drugs. No, we just know that those things are sinful and we are expected not to do those things. How would you respond to, to mm. him? Mm. Yeah, that's fair. I, I would love to be a part of a church where experiencing same-sex attraction is an ordinary temptation that is treated in an ordinary way. I would love that. Like, mm. <laughs> I would love to not be special. <laughs> and and that, that's actually the goal of my ministry is, is for, you know, if, if my godson ends up developing same-sex attractions mm. for mm. it, for it to be clear what God's wisdom is about that and to be clear that that is a brokenness, but for that to be no big deal. So my hunch is that the reason why there's a lot of interest in, you know, myself and and some of my kind of colleagues and peers who maybe get a lot of airtime and and, and have kind of larger platforms around these topics is because at least a a meaningful part of, of American, of Christians in America know that our churches are not yet places where it's yeah. ordinary for people to struggle with same-sex attractions, mm. where we are only a couple years removed from the Pray the Gay Away movement and ex-gay movement that led to mm. millions of people leaving the faith or committing suicide. They know that our churches are still not places where there are the, 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 the resources, the practical support for same-sex attracted people to thrive according to a historic sexual ethics. Our churches are not protecting kids from the wounds of the closet. Our churches are not mm. holding mm. straight people to the same high standard of sexual stewardship that we're holding gay people to. Our churches mm. are not places where anyone can thrive in the kind of singleness that Jesus and Paul talk about in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. So when that day comes, when our churches are doing that right, and we're still celebrating the stories of people like me inordinately, then then I'll be the first to delete my Instagram profile <laughs> and my Twitter account. Yeah, yeah and say mm. these followers are unhelpful for the witness of the church. Yeah. But until that day, they're needed. I, I think that's fair. And I think that I see you responding to a very specific need. And I think that that is something that, that Jesus wants people in ministry to do. There are specific needs that need to be responded to. And there are some of us that are dealing with the general audience that we're not going to have that same ministry, but I think our ministry should be informed by people like you to help us realize, okay, maybe there's some gaps 
maybe I haven't in my general ministry been realizing that there are a, a percentage of people within my body that struggle with this and I need to up my game on how I reach them. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate your, your comments on that. Um, you know, I, I have dear friends that are pastors and they, like you and me, are non-affirming in their theology, but they are trying to make their churches a place where same-sex attracted Christians can thrive. And that doesn't mean yeah. where their you know, sinful actions are affirmed for anybody. What it does mean is they want their churches to be a place where broken people are loved and embraced mm-hmm. and people who are tempted to sin in a same sexual way are treated with the same respect and dignity as someone tempted to sin in a heterosexual way. Both sides are allowed to be open and honest about their struggles. Both sides are continually pointed to repentance and dying to yeah. self. And and I've seen some gay Christians celebrated in those circles. I've seen them brought up to share their testimony and, and the pastor really like, you know, kind of praises them. But what I'm realizing, and this is just my own reflection, what I'm realizing is in the context of these pastors that I respect doing this, they aren't celebrating those people because they're gay. Right. They're celebrating yeah. them because of their dedication to vocational singleness, celibacy, serving Jesus with their whole life, and modeling for others what death to self looks like in a culture of this worship of pleasure. So that that's how sure. I see it. And I even yeah. told my friend that. I kind of texted him back and I was like, I don't see it that way. I don't see it as, sure. you know, maybe in other churches, but like with the people that we know and respect, it's not a right. celebration of homosexuality. It's a celebration of like here is somebody who's modeling what it looks like to follow Christ, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and maybe to, to give that, you know, the person who asked that question a little bit of credit, you know, are there some churches out there that technically hold a historic sexual ethic, but seem to be hedging their bets on it a little bit, seem a little embarrassed about it and mm, maybe mm. are in pretty culturally progressive contexts and mm. are trying to score some credibility points with 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 kind of the the what surrounds them and so are are maybe platforming some you know gay christians committed to a historic sexual ethic particularly maybe gay christians committed to a historic sexual ethic that that visually code as being the most culturally gay and then kind of platforming them as kind of a prop to kind of prove their progressive bona fides to their kind of Mm. surrounding culture, but then like not actually taking steps in private to become a church where gay Christians committed to a historic sexual ethic can thrive according to God's wisdom. Does that happen in some places? Yeah. Wow. Mm. And so if that's what he's criticizing, then, then that's fair. Dude, I love your charity, like towards the pushback. That's that's sure. so good. This has been probably one of the most balanced interviews we've ever had on the show. So I, I appreciate you, man. Let me throw another one at you. That that okay. was a great response, though. So here's another one from a friend of mine. So his concern was in in this conversation about same sexual sin, same sex attraction, all that stuff. He said, yeah. same. This is his his view. His theology says same sexual sin is worse than straight sexual sin because in the Bible mm-hmm. it's listed as an abomination. It's important that we keep teaching that. We don't want the severity of it to be lessened in people's minds. 
how would you respond to that? Do you think same sexual sin is worse than straight sexual sin? Yeah, so I think it's tricky to know what to do, particularly with some of the Levitical laws. There's a lot of things that the Levitical laws call abomination, some of which we believe was ritual purity law, some of which we believe was moral law, some yeah. of which we, we, we treat with the same weightiness today, some of which we don't. Here's, here's the, the way I would parse that out. Do I think that, and, and I'll go back to the, the, the blindness analogy from, from earlier. Hmm. Do I think that a person who is completely blind, their blindness is more broken than a person who deals with nearsightedness or farsightedness? Yeah. Like there, the, in that particular, that one part of like a whole, whole person that they are, that one part is more broken, is farther from God's first intentions than the other. Yeah. So is it the case that on average, people who experience same-sex attraction, their sexuality is, is more broken, is farther from God's intentions than the average person who experiences opposite sex attractions. I think that's true. Now, I, I don't mean that to say that, that the same-sex attracted people commit more sexual sin or they are more morally corrupt, but I just mean, like, is my sexual orientation farther from God's first intentions for me than if I experienced exclusively opposite sex attractions? I, I, think, I, think, we'd, I think it would be... I think theologically, we'd have to recognize that that is true. Now, are there... Are there exceptions to that rule, right? Are there some exclusively opposite sex attracted people, but then they have some temptations for some other things to a degree that some total their sexual orientation may be even more broken than mine is? Yeah, those people right. exist. You know, we don't need to go through a list of like what those uh, added on factors might be. Just just to interject that that's that's kind of where my brain went was like. I think what you're 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 kind of throwing in like a hierarchy of brokenness, sure. which what, sure, sure. I, I think there's a reality to that. There's a created order, you know. So it's like obviously anything that is different from that creative order is going to be further left, further to the left of the center of where God's trying to get us. But in my mind, it's like a same-sex attracted Christian who is like, I am committed to a life of celibacy. And I'm following Jesus and I'm resisting temptation. I've got accountability, all that stuff versus a straight Christian who's like just sleeping around and committing adultery all over the place. I'd say that the straight person is a little bit more sexually broken on the scale, if if that makes sense. But because it's 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 kind of like, where's your starting point? But then where are you because of your actions, if that makes sense? So it's this I see it as the spectrum, I guess. But I, I would tend to agree with you in the in the core principle of it. In the starting point, if you take out everyone's actions and it's just where are they mm-hmm. starting, somebody with a same-sex attraction is going to be a little bit more disadvantaged for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're yeah when we're comparing how broken is this, how far is this from God's first intentions? That's my answer there. So then, but, but comparing kind of actual sin, you know, I I think the the scenarios that in my mind are helpful to compare is, okay, think about two pairs of high schoolers. And one pair are the high school quarterback and the leader of the cheerleading team. Hmm. And both exclusively opposite sex attracted, both the most attractive people in their school, perhaps both Christians, and they show up to FCA every Thursday morning and they lead prayers sometimes. And they let's come, and, and then a, a, alternatively consider a pair of two, you know, kind of, 
oddball guys in the theater club and in the gay straight alliance who are both exclusively same-sex attracted and they don't feel welcome at FCA, but maybe they both believe in God. They both accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, you know, when they were younger. Yeah. They're not sure what to do with all this faith and sexuality stuff, but they're also believers. Okay, and on the same weekend, on the same Friday night, the quarterback and the cheerleader have sex after the quarterback wins a football game. And the two theater guys in the Gay Straight Alliance end up hanging out at one of their houses together and sleeping over and they also have sex. I don't think God is any more displeased with one of those than the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think they both equally fall short of God's best for his people. It's like um, when, when we start getting into this weird scale of God's mm-hmm. displeasure, to, to me what it smells of, it almost comes from a place of self-righteousness of mm-hmm. You know, the Pharisee looking at the tax collector and being like, you know, yeah. thank you, Lord, I'm not like him. Instead of pushing people for that heightened sense of awareness of our sexual brokenness. But it is mm-hmm. good. I mean, you you did call out in the beginning, like, yeah, there is this order, there is this hierarchy. But I think I just want to go single in on the whole abomination thing. Because to me, like, I tend to lean more towards what's called biblical theology versus systematic theology. And so that's mm-hmm. looking at the meta narrative of scripture and looking at everything in this holistic way, instead of hunting and pecking for specific verses that systematically say you can or can't do such and such thing. So for, for me, like mm-hmm. when I think about what is an abomination at its core, it's something that God hates, you know, sin, like yeah. all sin really is an abomination if you think about mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. yeah, Proverbs six sixteen through 19 has that list. Seven things which are abominations. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are swift running to mischief, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. To me, like I recognize that the Bible says that practicing same sexual sin is an abomination. But I also look at all those other things on the list and I'm like, okay, heterosexual adultery may not be called an abomination of the Bible with those exact words, but you can't get to adultery without hitting pretty much everything on that Proverbs six list. Like <laughs> right, yeah, haughty yeah. eyes is looking down on others. It's like, I deserve to take this woman from her husband, you know, bringing the woman and yourself into lies and deception, mm-hmm. you know, to, to plan to have adultery is literally to devise a wicked scheme. It's yeah. feet running to mischief and it's literally spreading strife. So it's mm-hmm. like, how, got them all <laughs> yeah it's like, i mean except for hands that shed innocent blood was the only oh, one that there you go. we didn't hit but mm-hmm. i'm just trying to say i just think we need to be more balanced that's the thing i'm not saying that we should take any sin less seriously and i think that's what you're pushing for is you're you say we need to take all of this sin extremely seriously whether it's straight yeah. or gay we need to have a raise the bar mm-hmm. yeah absolutely Let me go on to another pushback that I think will be an important one. So the terminology of gay Christian, why do you use that terminology? Because I know that's a sensitive one and there are people that are are frustrated with that terminology sure. and they, they wish that people would just say same-sex attracted Christian. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand the concern and, and the words we use do matter. And and I'm sure we can include in the show notes kind of a, a lengthy explainer that, that is on <laughs> my website and Equip's website about why we use the terminology we, we use. But in a nutshell, I don't think that there's any phrase or word to use in this conversation that is clear to every audience and without baggage with every audience. Mm. I think both the word gay and the phrase same-sex attraction are either unclear or carry baggage with yeah. every audience. Mm. And that's the challenge. So when some people hear me use the word gay and, and they understand that word to mean people who all do drugs and go to group sex parties and have AIDS <laughs> and want nothing to do with Jesus. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's what I grew up hearing the word gay means. But if you ask a middle schooler or a high schooler today what the word gay means, they would say a boy who likes boys or a girl who likes girls mm. with no mm. assumptions about their theological convictions or their their behavior patterns. And, and Alternatively, if you use the phrase same-sex attraction, there may be some who would say, well, hey, that's, that's just kind of self-evident. It just means as much and as little as what it says. Mm. A person who experiences same-sex attraction is a person who experiences same-sex attraction. Why don't we just mm. use that, right? But for others, for anyone who, for any LGBT plus people who have been around since the 80s or who are aware of the history of the ex-gay movement or the Pray the Gay Way movement, they know that the phrase same-sex attraction was popularized by the Pray the Gay Way movement. Mm. And for many gay people, Christian and not, that phrase is associated with the millions of people who left the faith or committed suicide because of the Pray the Gay Way movement. It's associated mm. with a consistent research that shows that 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 96% of people who attempt in sexual orientation change efforts experience no change in their sexual orientation, mm. but they did experience a doubled risk of suicide attempts and 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 other disturbing practices that were and shaming practices and and misuses of the Holy Spirit that were used in those spaces, and so the phrase same sex attraction carries a lot of baggage for some mm. people. So so there's no perfect term for ministry to LGBT plus non-Christians and gay teens in your church and straight culture warriors in your church. Mm. There is no mm. term that all of those people will be affected with all of those people. And so essentially, <laughs> I think anyone doing ministry in this around these topics is going to have to choose something knowing they were going, it's going to work for some people and it's going to offend some other people. Yeah. And then be willing to do the work of talking to the people who you're going to offend by using that phrase or terminology and hopefully clear things up enough. So for me, my primary audience, my first audience, particularly when it comes to public ministry that I do, are young adults and teens who are LGBT plus yeah. or who are straight, but are trying to figure out how they think about God's love and wisdom for LGBT plus people. Yeah. And for that audience, the best words to use are the words that, that all of their peers use. Yeah. Gay, LGBT+, sexual minority, gender minority, queer, non-straight, all these kinds of things. So that language is not a barrier to the much more important conversation we need to have about sexual ethics and yeah. about God's wisdom and about what our churches can be doing to become places of thriving for people who want to follow God's wisdom. But I also recognize that by me using those words, there's going to be some people who see that and are, are and, and, and have that understanding of the word gay that I had growing up 
and 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 to don't have don't understand how the phrase same-sex attraction is connected to the pray the gay away movement and so don't understand why i don't just use that phrase instead and yeah. i understand why they would be suspicious and and i just i hope that they you know will listen to this podcast and hear this explanation but often when yeah. i'm when i'm you know speaking you know in person to an audience where i know a majority of people in the audience are going to have the would have those hesitations would have those suspicions of me if i use certain terminology I will choose to use the terminology that it's most helpful for them to hear. I'll choose to just use the phrase same-sex attraction, for example. So, but it's tricky because when we're, we're in, we're in public, <laughs> you know, everybody's reading it. So. Yeah, dude, that, wow. What a great response. Honestly, R- really, mm. really good. Really balanced. I I'm blessed by it. I hear your heart and the heart that I hear is you're a missionary and every missionary needs to study the culture that they're called to be a missionary to. They need to learn the language and how to speak the language of the people that they're trying to reach. Yeah. And so for me, like what it comes down to is like, yes, words have meanings, meanings have words, all that stuff is true. But at the heart of it, it's what do we believe? What's our theology around this stuff? And to me, if if someone's going to write you off because they think that you use the wrong word without hearing your heart behind why, to me, that's that's just unfortunate. I think the language part of things is difficult. I think, mm-hmm. like, just to be honest, most of us straight pastors still struggle to figure out, like, what terminology to use for anything. And sure, a lot sure. of us do it very clumsily. <laughs> I'm sure you know. There, there was a thing recently where I had a friend actually reach out to me because he was upset about something I said. I'm trying to see if I can remember it correctly, but it was like, he, it was one friend of mine who was a pastor was mad at another friend of mine who's a pastor because my friend who is a pastor was sharing something on social media about how the church needs to love, you know, those in the gay community. And obviously this guy is non-affirming. He's been clear about that his entire ministry career. But in the comments, I said something about just our need as the church to stand up and be like, hey, even though we're not affirming, we need to love the LGBTQ plus community. And my friend messaged me and was like, hey, you know that by using that plus, you're actually talking about pedophilia. And in my mind, I was like, that's not what I was thinking I was saying at all. But in, in his mind, that's what the plus means. So can you mm. speak to that at all? Like just the, wow. the, the, the complexity of the language around this is very challenging for people. And, and obviously in the secular realm, that mm. acronym is constantly getting longer. So how, yeah. how can you encourage people to navigate that wisely? Yeah, I, I, I did not know that the plus means that. Maybe it means that to some Maybe people. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe he heard that on some talk radio show. I don't know. What, what does that stand for in your mind? So the plus means, so when I'm referring just to people who experience same-sex attraction, I might use the word gay, or I yep. might say lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, or I might right. say sexual minorities. Sexual minorities then actually includes asexual people. So it goes a little, it's a little bit more including of people than just gay or LGB. Then there's the other side of the alphabet that's related to people's experience of their gender and their gender identity and their gender expression. Hmm. And so... For me, it it does get pretty overwhelming, all of the things you have to list in order to be fully inclusive. And so I've just found it helpful to just kind of decide LGBT, and then I'm just going to put the plus there, right? Like I remember a coworker and I were saying, should it be LGBT plus or LGBTQ plus or LGB plus? Or, you know, at some point you just got to choose one of the years. For me, the plus just means, and there's other people who consider themselves sexual or gender minorities who may be included in this list of people. Um, yeah, I, so I, I had a 
I, I remember having a girl in the youth group who, you know, she was asexual. So she mm-hmm. was like, I have no attraction to anybody. And for mm-hmm. and she was getting into some of the more you know, the ways that the secular culture was framing things. She was, you know, getting into that. And so for her, mm-hmm. she considered herself a part of that plus. So, sure. yeah, yeah, I think I think my friend is probably off there and being a little reactionary. But I, I do think it's wise to be careful. And what, what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to learn from is to not just grab the entire acronym, but focus more on, well, who am I actually talking about? Like right now sure. when I'm saying this, like, whoa, yeah, am I just am I talking about everybody or am I saying something that's specific to gay, lesbian and bi people? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's just been for me what I've been trying to do. But it is tricky. Yeah. yeah and two other things that might be helpful for me to clarify when it comes to terminology is, you know, yeah. particularly when we have this kind of conversation, one is to say that when I use the word gay, I am yeah. not using that word to identify with my same sex attractions mm, or to mm. identify with gay sex. Certainly not doing that. I am using that word to identify with other people who have had a shared experience. I'm mm. using it particularly to identify with other people who have had the shared experience of, of being in the closet for five yeah. plus years yeah. And, yeah. and having to learn how to share their story fully with the people who care for them. And how to mm. reconcile important things like faith and sexuality. And, and I'm particularly using that word to identify with other Christians who experience same-sex attraction, who have submitted that enduring brokenness to Jesus. And as a result, it's been a, a source of beauty in their life and a source of faithfulness and a source of, a source of, 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 of having something to offer the body yeah. of Christ despite their brokenness. And thanks to their faithfulness and thanks to Christ's faithfulness in, in, in their sanctification. So mm. that's when I'm using the word gay, that's what I'm using the word gay to do. I yeah. also want to clarify that I'm I am using the word gay phenomenologically, not mm. ontologically. So when we <laughs> define something phenomenologically, we're naming something from the word phenomena, you know, we're naming something based on one's experience or what it appears to be. In contrast, when we ask like a who a person is ontologically, we're asking who are they innately by design? We're talking about ontology. We're talking about God's intentions. So when I use the word gay, I am not saying that I or someone else is ontologically gay. I'm not saying that I am a fundamentally different person or that God intended for me to be gay. I'm merely noticing that I am attracted to other people of the same sex. And I'm using the most common word, particularly among my first audience of ministry, to describe that kind of person. That makes a lot of sense, man. I think you you are so clear. You're you're so good. I'm I'm just learning as someone who's meeting you <laughs> and talking to you. You're so good at bringing clarity to a very complex and often confusing discussion. So I I just appreciate mm. that gift that you have. One thing that comes to my mind in this is, you know, I'm thinking about how all of these tensions we have around the word gay in the church. There's so much political and cultural baggage that comes with it that often like informs and fuels our debate. But I, I was thinking about like, you know, if, if, if I made a parallel to a divorce, you know, and it's like, a di- like if, if I met someone at a church and they identified as like, Hey, I, yeah, I'm, I'm divorced. I'm a divorced person. Similar to homosexuality in my mind, at least divorce is an identity that someone mm. carries with them that is tied to the fall. Like it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for sin and for the fall. Sure. But when I meet somebody at my church 
who is described by themselves or someone else as a divorced person or they self-identify as a divorced person, I usually give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they know that divorce in most cases is a sin. I, I, you know, I assume that whatever happened, this this is just my gut reaction. Like if I meet a divorced person in church, I'm assuming whatever happened with their divorce, whether it was their fault or their spouse's fault or shared blame, I assume that they, if they did sin, they've repented and they're doing their best to follow Jesus and submit to him. And, and the place my mind goes is, you know, is there a future, a possibility where we can get to the place where if we meet someone in church and they have that identifier of, of gay, we don't instantly jump to the conclusion like, oh, so they're, they must be sleeping around with other men or other women. Sure. But instead we jump to the conclusion, we give them that benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But that just seems, it seems like that is a future that's so distant because I know where we've been and what the experience has been. It's like, how do we get there? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what's funny is old conservatives often complain about virtue signaling. They would say that, you know, more culturally progressive people do. But this is an example of virtue signaling that is happening among cultural Christians that Hmm. whether you use the phrase same sex attraction or the phrase gay is a, Hmm. is, 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 uh, is a virtue signal or at least cultural Christians want it to be a virtue signal. I believe in avoiding virtue signaling and virtue signaling being silly, but yeah. I think then we need to call on virtual virtue signaling in all directions. So <laughs> That's convicting, man. I mean, I'm just par- processing through what you just said, and it's like I, I know that I tend to use the term same-sex attracted. True. And the reason that I do, and maybe it's virtue signaling, <laughs> But the reason I do is because I know my audience and yeah, I know yeah. I know the assumptions that they bring to the table if I say gay Christian. Sure, sure. So I say same-sex attracted Christian as a way to not have to stop and pause what I'm doing and over-explain every single time I say it, if that makes sure, sense. Sure. I mean, be honest with me. Is that, am I, am I virtue signaling? And then, you know, if so, what's the, what's the solution? <laughs> I, I, I think I really does depend on your audience. But, you know, I think for me, because I know how, because I know there is a lot of work to do with offering God's wisdom for gay people and embodying that in ways that leads to thriving and, and faithfulness, because there's a lot of work to do there, I, I choose to use, and this is not only because of, of an age difference, but, but regardless of age, I think I want to use the language that maybe, what's the right word, that accommodates them mm. first. Like if, if I'm mm. going to, if, if no matter what language I use, it's going to be, it's going to be more appealing to some and more of a barrier to others. And, and if, and if, and if, I mean, if, if cultural conservatives were believe that LGBT plus people are less church and less Christian people and need to be reached with the gospel. Well, then if, 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 if we believe that there's a greater need for, for evangelism there, then then wouldn't we then choose to use the language that we would be most effective for evangelism mm. and then choose to make uncomfortable believers in our church and, and, and explain to them, hey, I know you do this word language is confusing, but we're using it to be effective for evangelism and 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 a good on you for being willing to kind of uh, endure a little bit of discomfort here for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. Isn't that what we do with everything else when it comes to evangelism? Yeah, totally. uh, we, 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 we see it as, a, as something that we should be proud to do as believers to take on a little bit of discomfort for the sake of the gospel being able to reach some people it can't reach right now. Why don't we, again, right now, that's a whole other conversation as to whether LGBT plus people are less church people or they are 
more in more need of the gospel than straight people. But if that's the assumption that someone's yeah. coming into this with, then what shouldn't we be eager to to be effective in evangelism? You know. So anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, and for those people listening who, you know, we've got our Calvary background with Chuck Smith and the 60s and the hippies. I mean, we we know like that our founder in Calvary was this guy who was willing. He didn't look at the hippies and say, I want them to use the language I use. I want them to dress how I dress. I want them to cut their long hair and put on a shirt and you know, no, like he adapted. He was like, I'm going to invite yeah. the hippies in and they don't have to put on a shirt. Like they, they, they can wear their hair long. Let's get some hippies to play music in the worship band to contextualize yeah. the gospel to them and what they're going through. And it's not about compromising theology. It's about right. adapting to the audience for what their need is. So I, I think I love that you're not being dogmatic about any, like pretty much everything we've been talking about. You, you haven't been like, well, you have to say this or you have to say that and you can't say this, you can't say that. You've been very, uh, you've been pointing us to kind of that fluidity of not changing our theology, but adapting our methods to mm. reach specific groups of people. And I, I for one appreciate that. This has been absolutely fantastic. This has been a great conversation, you know, and and I've just been honestly so blessed by your heart. And and I'm somebody that's still learning and processing. And so, you know, as I as I read your stuff and look at it, there's there's so many things I'm like, yes, that is my heart. I love that. There's there's a few things sometimes I read where I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I fully agree about that methodology piece. But like regardless of disagreements over methodology, I feel like as far as heart goes, I am in utter agreement with your heart of reaching this demographic mm-hmm. and of carrying the historic Christian sex ethic without compromise, but also like bending over backwards to show love to others. So I just appreciate you so much. And I, I, I want to share the final pushback to end okay. up the episode. And this one actually comes from me. I'm just okay. going to own it. Like, You're going to own this one. This is not from a friend. Not, I'm not asking for a friend. This is something that I saw and I just kind of was like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. I, mm. I want to ask Peter yeah. for some clarity. So you did a post on social media about shame, mm-hmm. which is like a massive issue for anybody. Sure. Like just as a, as a former youth pastor, like I just know the shame piece is so hard for any young person struggling with sexual sin. But I, I you know, I see, I see gay, lesbian by young people struggling with so much shame from yeah. this, especially in the church. And so, you know, I know from reading your stuff, there's a balance between understanding that sexual sin is wrong, but also the burden of people walking in shame about the temptations they have. So you shared this post about shame and you had this model and the first two parts of it, I, I really resonated with the, you, you said, you know, number one, share your story. So confession of sin and or struggle to those who are safe and will love you and support you and encourage you and not affirm your sin, but they'll, they'll point you to Christ. I thought that was great. Mm -hmm. And then number two was, you know, overcoming shame, heal your past memories. So detangling what you call appropriate guilt with destructive shame. I think that's brilliant. Like, cause I think, uh, you know, the, the more 
secular, more left-leaning realm would just say, don't feel bad about anything. Like, don't have shame sure. about anything. Just be yourself. Yeah. I, I, I love that you recognize, like, there's appropriate guilt, but there's also destructive shame. Here was my struggle, just where I had, like, a check in my heart when I read it, where I was like, I don't know, man. You had this part where you said, see yourself in art. Give permission. You're, you're speaking to same-sex attracted and, and, and gay Christians here. Give mm-hmm. permission to listen to music and watch movies where gay characters are portrayed as normal while avoiding any sexual or romantic content that may be unhelpful. Here's the thing. If I were to recommend your ministry to pastors in my tribe, for many of them, if they were to stumble on that post, that would probably cause a lot of confusion for them. And I know just from what we talked about, like they're not your target audience. I totally get that. But to them, here's how I feel like it kind of reads like, hey, if you struggled with adultery in your past, we want to help you recognize the sin, but move past the shame. So allow yourself to see yourself represented in media. Watch shows that normalize people that have committed adultery. Do you kind of see the tension there? Like, do you think that's an exaggeration? How would you respond to somebody like me who kind of is like, man, I don't know about that? Sure. Yeah. So I think. There's a way, maybe if I talk to some people who do consi- are married but consistently experience the temptation to 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 cheat on their spouse, maybe there is a way that they feel like it is it is it is ever present in their daily experience in a mm. way that it is it could be just as meaningful a thing to kind of identify with or is or such it is just as meaningful a part of their personhood as my same-sex attraction has been. But I think one of the things that's way that's different is that our culture, Christian and not, treats them very differently. So in the 30s and then 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond, kind of culturally conservative spaces, including churches, told gay people, we don't want you in our spaces. Mm. Go away. Go create your own communities. And so they did. Yeah. And and in order to to survive, they created kind of a, a culture around their kind of survival and enduring together. And and, you know, many of these those people were committing sexual sin. I'm not like I'm not, you know, ignoring yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But they yeah, also yeah, were enduring right. hate crimes yes. and physical yes. abuse and and discrimination when it comes to housing and employment and lots of horrible things. And all the and suicide they that this, comes with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So there's this way that culturally, sexual identity, particularly as a sexual minority, has this, this all these cultural artifacts and this whole momentum around it that being a, 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 a having divorced does not. Mm. Now, those are not inherent. Those are culturally created, right? Yeah. But there is something in the soup of American culture that gives sexual identity, being a sexual minority, this extra stuff <laughs> yeah. that, that, that having been divorced doesn't have associated with it. So what I, uh, as a person who experiences same-sex attraction, if everything else was the same, but I could have chose to flip a switch and I grew up in an America where all of that cultural power around being same-sex attracted didn't exist, would I prefer that? Absolutely. Right. But I grew up in the soup that I did, where it, yeah. where what I was told over and over again by progressives, but also by conservatives, that it meant a lot about me that I was gay. Mm. And so mm. it, because of that, maybe that's how it's a little bit different 
that I'm at some core level, it's been baked into me that this is a really meaningful part of my personhood. And at the same time, it's been baked into me from particularly the lies of the enemy that, that I should be ashamed and that I'm not worth God's love and not worth the love of my brothers and sisters in Christ because of that part of my person. Yeah. And because of that, it's been helpful for me to, to watch some movies or listen to some music where the characters are not engaging in sexual sin or even in romantic activity, but they, it's clear that they are same-sex attracted. Right. And, they, and, and you as the audience are led to empathize with them. You yeah. Know? The- so I think of like the movie, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Or the movie Boy Erased, neither of which have any sexual content and, and at least among the gay characters, no meaningful like romantic content. And I could watch those movies and, and see myself in, in a way in those characters and my heart empathizes for those characters mm. and their brokenness and their pain and their struggle. And then it's fine. I find it a little easier to empathize for myself. And ultimately what I'm trying to do is reteach myself how to see myself the way Jesus does, right? Mm. How to have tenderness towards myself in the way Jesus does. That's mm. what I'm trying to relearn. And, and that's, that's the goal with that for me. But I, again, I totally get how that there's plenty of stuff, content out there that it would be unhelpful for me to see. And I understand how this is very, very nuanced and maybe alarming to see in a quick two-sentence snippet right. on Instagram post. That, that's the thing. It's like if my first exposure to you is not even that whole post, but if someone just sends me that slide of that post, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. wait, what? But I appreciate hearing your heart. The The place that my mind is going to in it that is connecting the dots for me. And I, I know that we've, you know, alcoholism or drug addiction, you know, is not a correct parallel. But sure. I think in, in this instance, like if there was somebody out there who, you know, had battled drug addiction and 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 the way that they had seen drug addicted people in the media was always like they're the worst of the worst they're the lowest of the low the scum of the earth you know and then they watch a movie where it's not glorifying drug addiction but it's just depicting somebody that is battling that struggle and that temptation Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. even a christian movie but just like showing somebody where it's like man, there is a central part of their character conflict that has them dealing with this. There there can be a resonation where it's like, whoa, like here's a hero in a movie that struggles with the same thing I do. And what I see you doing, Peter, is you're trying to get people somewhere and there's a path that you're taking them to get there. And that, that path has like windy roads and many steps. But the, when I look at the whole of your ministry, like if, if I'm uneducated about it, I can look at that post and think, oh, so Peter, his end game is to get people to the point where they normalize same sexual sin and they think it's fine and it's not sinful and whatever. And that's just not true. Because when you look at the whole of your ministry, the place that you're trying to get people is to understand the weight of sin and the reality of God's design for marriage and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're taking people on that path. And if the gateway for them getting there is for them just learning to get rid of their shame in these practical ways. I'm okay with that, you know, 
Because I, again, it's about, I look at what is your theology and what is your heart? And I don't see your, when I look at the collective whole of your heart and what you're saying and who you are, you're not trying to affirm sin. So I think it's one of those things where it's like everything just requires a little bit of nuance and a little bit of sensitivity to, you know, and, and, and if it were me, I probably wouldn't have worded the post that you did. If I'm honest, I probably sure. would not have worded it that way, but I can respect that you did what you did because I know your heart. And I get yeah. your heart now, you know, so yeah. if that makes sense, it's like we yeah. can agree to a disagree on that slight little thing there, but I have so much respect for your heart and what you're trying to do. And I think you're yeah. doing it beautifully. Well, thanks for giving me an opportunity to, to explain it. And yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know how much time people think I spend writing some of these, these <laughs> captions for these posts, not enough time, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the, uh, there's many things that I've written particularly in a platform like social media that I look back what is some stuff I wrote six months ago and I said, oh, I would totally rewrite that differently now. Same. Um, so, I've yeah, been blasted. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. been blasted by some of my fellow people in ministry where it's like, dude, why did you write that that way? That was so unclear and so unhelpful. And it's like, in my mind, I thought I was, <laughs> I thought I was really clear, but I guess you, yeah. know, you, 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 you write that thing and you're like, this is so good. This is so clear. And then you hit send <laughs> and then you get five people in your DMs who are like, bro, what are you doing? So, <laughs> sure. But, sure. but but that's not what, what what that post wasn't even as severe as that. I'm just trying to say, man, I appreciate you. <laughs> that, yeah, that's all I'm trying yeah. to say. I think yeah, you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. I'm inc- thank I'm you. encouraged by your heart and who you are. Yeah, thank you. And, and I would say, if if people are you know curious, I would say first you know connect with some of the longer form stuff that's been published in in, in really credible places like Christianity Today and Mirror Orthodoxy and Fathom Magazine and and Christ and Pop Culture. Read the stuff that I've had published there. You know, first, yeah. that's the stuff that, you know, editors have helped make sure that I'm actually communicating well. Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah, I'll grab some of that stuff and I'll put it in the links in the show notes because I think you've got so much good stuff to offer, so much good stuff to say. And I think that, you know, we've been talking for a while on this episode. I think we need to do a follow up episode. If that's cool with yeah. you, where we can dive into now that we've established, you know, some of the theologies, now that we've wrestled through some of the pushback, let's jump into the, the methodology because what I'm primarily concerned with is how can we as the church make a better future in this area how can we forge a world where same-sex attracted christians gay christians whatever you want to call it those who are committed to the historic christian sex ethic and the way of jesus how can we create a space that is more helpful for them and encouraging for them and where they can thrive as christ followers like that's what I'm so interested in. And so I think you'd be a great mm-hmm. guy to talk about, like, what does it look like for us as the church to forge that future? Would you be, would you be interested? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to, love to keep chatting in that way. Awesome, man. Well, we'll do it again soon. Peter, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Seriously, this has been an epic conversation. I'm blessed. I hope <laughs> those of you guys listening are blessed. And is there any final encouragement you'd want to leave our audience before you leave? Uh, just encouragement to keep leaning in to these conversations. I think God really does have good news and good gifts for people who experience persisting same-sex attractions. And I don't think, maybe bringing this full circle, I don't think that that those of us who are gay are doomed to some less full life. I think Jesus has just as full of a life to offer us. And I think our churches can be a big part of helping God offer that fullness to those people in our churches and outside of our churches. So yeah, looking forward to our next conversation to talk about how exactly our churches can do that. Beautiful. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate it, man. You're welcome. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. We hope this episode has encouraged and challenged you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Our goal and heart for this show is to always be pointing you to the God who is not safe, but who is very, very good. If you enjoyed this show, we would so appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. The more reviews we get, the more people are able to find the show. So please leave a review. It helps so much. The Good Lion Podcast is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. And we are a part of CGN Media. For more great content, visit cgnmedia.org. For more from Good Lion Ministries, you can also find tons of podcasts, resources, courses, and more at our ministries website, goodlion.org. If you'd like to support the work that we do, please visit goodlion.org support. With your help, we can continue pointing people to Jesus and providing thought-provoking resources for the church. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this episode helped you on your journey of following Jesus. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on him.